When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Joan Osborne performs live at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on Thursday night. We spoke about her journey from an early interest in documentary filmmaking to a career in music, asking the famous question, what if God was one of us? Hi, Jason. It's Joan. Joan Osborne. Thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Well, it's my pleasure. How are you today? We're doing good. We're doing good. We're excited to uh, promote your show here. You're coming up to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on March 31st. Now, do you, do you get, you've been over to the Birchmere multiple times. I mean, we, we spoke to you a couple of years ago when you came to the Birchmere, but uh, why, why is that such a great spot to play? I mean, it's, is it just the intimacy or what is it? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I had definitely have a long history of playing the Birchmere. And I think this goes back to even before I had a record deal. Um, so, I, you know, there's a long history with them. And, and I love the way that the sound system is, you know, it's just a very comfortable place. You step out onto stage and it's one of those rooms that kind of pulls the music out of you. You don't have to work super hard to feel like you're reaching people. It just, you can sort of relax into it. And uh, we've always had a lot of fun there and we've always had great crowds there. So I'm really looking forward to it. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, where, where does this fall for you getting back out, you know, pandemic wise, the last two years have been mm -hmm. been, been crazy, but uh, well, I guess that's my question. H how have you spent the last two years? Did, were you, were you stuck at home? Did it, did it allow you time to write new stuff or how's it been? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, like a lot of people, I was stuck at home um, and I actually did a lot of cleaning and I found some things in my closets uh, like old CDs, old cassettes, old files. And I started going through them and, and eventually was able to put together a new release from a lot of this sort of, uh, you know, back from the vaults kind of stuff. And it's, uh, it's out now on CD. We, we don't have the vinyl yet, but it's out now on CD and uh, it's called Radio Waves. And it's a, just sort of a selection of stuff all the way back to the 1990s uh, through, you know, nearly the present. So it, that was a, a really nice surprise. And, and, you know, for me, because I, I tour so much and, and I really missed being able to be out on the road and see the fans, this was sort of my way of kind of making up for that. If, if I can't go out and do shows for people, at least I can release something that has these, you know, interesting sort of, you know, from the vaults recordings. Very, very cool. Well, I'm glad that you you were able to, you know, 
get some creative stuff done during while you were sidelined. <laughs> now we're back out there bringing live music to people. Uh, so it'll be a fun show at the Birchmere. Um, uh, well, whenever I have someone on, I love to hear sort of, you know, your whole journey if possible. So tell me about growing up, I guess it was what Anchorage, Kentucky, just outside of Louisville, you know, uh, it was a small town life. Uh, how, how did you get into music? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very small town and it was one of those places where you never locked your doors and you kind of knew everybody. And and uh, I'm one of six kids. So all six of us, you know, we sort of felt like we could run around in the woods and build forts and climb trees. And, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of sense of being restricted. It was a very free way to grow up. So I'm really, really grateful for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, my my daughter is growing up uh, in Brooklyn. So it's a very, very different kind of a scene. So I'm really, I'm, I'm very grateful for having the childhood that I did. And, and, uh, I did sing when I was in school and growing up and, and, uh, had a great music teacher named Carolyn Browning, who really challenged the choir in school. And we would do these very complicated five and six part harmonies. And, and we did English madrigals at Christmas time. And we even traveled to Colonial Williamsburg and sang in churches and, and uh, sort of performed even at that stage, I think I was 12 years old. So, <clears throat> so I, I did have a little bit of a background in it, but when I came to New York, I was actually going to college and studying filmmaking. So it was sort of an accident that I even ended up doing music. So yeah, you cement, you mentioned that you were going to school. This was at NYU, right? And you were trying to be yeah. a, a documentary filmmaker, was it? Yeah, you know, I started out being very interested in, in a lot of different kinds of film. And then I just sort of gravitated towards documentary because, you know, the, the characters and the situations were just so unique and so unusual. I was like, nobody could ever make this up in a million years. So this is the most interesting stuff is the reality. Um, and that's what I was drawn to. But I also sort of accidentally stumbled upon this very vibrant music scene that was going on. This was the 80s in New York City. And it was a very vibrant scene. And there was a lot of roots music and blues and, and things going on in the clubs. And, and I went out for a drink one night with a friend and he dared me to go up and sing. And I went up and sang and I, I kind of, you know, it's not like there was a big producer in the audience who says, I'm going to make you a star, but it, it was an introduction to this whole musical milieu that was happening. And I slowly but surely got drawn into it to the point where I was, you know, playing shows myself in, in New York city and thinking, well, I really want to see how far I can take this. Awesome. Well, I actually want to I want to dive back into in, in for to two follow up questions on that whole thing you just said. So first of mm -hmm. all, but before before you do the before you go to the live music scene back on the whole, you know, NYU documentary thing, um, mm -hmm. who because I'm a I'm a movie guy myself. So who, mm -hmm. who are you? This is the late 80s. You're into documentaries. Are you what? Who were your touchstones at that point? Is it I guess is it like Errol Morris? Yeah, I loved Errol Morris. Um, I, I loved Barbara Koppel, who uh, did the did the film Harlan County, USA. That's a which good, was such a masterpiece, right? Incredible film. Yeah. And, and if people aren't familiar with it, it's it's about uh, sort of the, the war between the coal miners and the coal companies uh, erupting in this very small rural area 
in Harlan County, Kentucky. And it's, it's really just fascinating sort of nail biting thing. Uh, it's again, it's, it's more exciting, I think, than a lot of fiction could ever be because it talks about a real situation. Um, and I also, you know, I studied with a guy named George Stoney, who was one of the first people to, uh, to go around and, and travel and use these relatively primitive cameras. Uh, and he did uh, a film about uh, a rural midwife in the South. And it was just this very beautiful portrait of this woman and her day-to-day -day experience. And, and it was just such a, a, a wonderful thing. And I, he, I really caught the bug from him, from George Stoney. Wow. So you totally could have been going down that documentary filmmaker path. Mm -hmm. You could have you you could have been the next Barbara Koppel, but instead, <laughs> instead you you go out, you know, by chance to what was it, the Abilene Cafe? Is that what it was? That's right. It was called the Abilene Cafe. It's not there anymore, but it was on the corner of Second Avenue and 21st Street in New York City. And it was a blues club. And uh, the night that I first went, um, this friend of mine kind of dared me to go up and sing. And this was late at night and the band had finished and the piano player was just sort of sitting there and playing for himself and the handful of people that were still in the club. And so I, I was like, OK, well, if you buy the drinks, I'm going to go up and do this. And I, I talked to the piano player and, and we figured out a song that we both knew. Um, and I sang the Billie Holiday song, God Bless the Child. And, you know, it's not like the sky fell down or anything, but this piano player said, oh, we have an open mic night every week. You should come back and, and join us. So I started doing that once a week and, and uh, meeting a lot of musicians and finding out that there were other open mic nights around the city. And I started going to these other places as well. And, and you know, I think for me, there was something just so galvanizing about music and singing in particular because filmmaking is you know it's wonderful but it it's, takes a long process it takes a lot of money it takes a lot of equipment it takes teams of people whereas music it's more immediate and especially if you're singing it's just this more physical thing so i think i felt this sort of physical release and this uh, a way of not living so much in my head and allowing my whole spirit and my whole body and soul to be involved in, in this creation. And, and it really, uh, it, it really was amazing. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm still, I still love it. I'm still grateful that I get to do this for a living. Well, yeah, all your fans will be glad you chose the music route. Because my, uh, <laughs> the, and I, yeah, and I don't want to say one's harder than the other. And my, my wife and I talk about it all the time, but it is a, it is just such a, it's a giant boulder. You have to push up a mountain to even get a movie made versus a song. It's, it's you, can, mm -hmm. you can write it and get it out there and start, you know, quote unquote, workshopping it in front of a live crowd with a guitar more immediately. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can go sing in the street with a, you know, open guitar case in front of you if, if you really want to do that. And uh, you can't really do that in the film business. Right. Well, you, I think you chose right. It worked out pretty well. So tell me about uh, how you got, how'd you get signed? You did your own independent label first, right? And then you mm -hmm. got signed with Mercury. The first album that I put out on my own label was a live album. And, oh. uh, and that was really just because at that point I was, sort of touring all around the Northeast and playing cities like Boston and Burlington, Vermont and Buffalo, New York. And every place we went, people would come to us after the show and say, oh, I want to buy your album. Where is it? And I was like, uh, I don't have an album for you to buy. So maybe I should really get on this. You know? So, um, you know, I was certainly aware of the whole 
DIY music scene and, you know, punk bands and, and a lot of punk bands in the DC area were very much on this DIY tip and of, you know, releasing their own records and not waiting around for somebody to give them permission to do what they really wanted to do. So I did a lot of research and put together a proposal. And one of the guys who owned one of the clubs that I was in said that he would front the money for this. And we recorded a live album in a place called Delta 88, a club in New York City. And that was the first release on my, my own label, which is called Womanly Hips Music. Awesome. And then, of course, the big breakthrough comes mm-hmm. uh, with your first studio album uh, with Relish. Uh, and it was in, what year was that? 95. Um, yeah. Of course, the big, big one, one of us uh, would change your life, uh, nominated for record of the year, song of the year, all of that stuff. Uh, but tell, tell me about what the creation of that song. Like, why do you think it connected so well with audiences? Just this idea mm-hmm. of God not necessarily being some divine being, but just, you know, someone next mm-hmm. to us, a stranger on the, on the bus. Yeah, well, uh, I actually didn't write the song. It was written by a guy named Eric Bazilian, who uh, was part of the team that I was working with to write the songs for the record. And he woke up in the middle of the night, had this idea for a song, went down to his little home studio, made a demo of it, and then went back to sleep. And the next morning, he brought it in to us to play for us. And he had had it in his mind to pitch it to this band called the Crash Test Dummies. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but so when we Eric- ju- We just demo, interviewed them on this same show like a week ago. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's so funny. Their lead singer has this very sort of low, dirgy voice. So when Eric made the demo, he sang the song in this very low sort of dirgy voice. And, you know, I heard it the first time. I was like, oh, that's cool. And the producer, Rick Chertoff, was like, wait a minute, that's a hit song you need to give that to Joan. And I was like, oh no, no, it's fine. He's, you know, he wants to do this other thing with it. And he was like, no, why don't you try singing it? So, you know, it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around it because on hearing it the first time, it didn't sound like a song for me, but the more I listened to it and the more I connected with the lyrics, it sort of reminded me of one of those questions that a little kid will come up and tug you on your sleeve and ask you um, that you don't, necessarily have an answer for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember when my daughter was very young, she she asked me, mommy, when did time start? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, you, you can't really answer that question because right. there is no good answer for it, but it makes you think, and it makes you think about all your assumptions that you've, you know, grown up and, and you know, don't really think about. Um, so that's what what I really connected with in the lyric is this, this idea of this sort of very innocent question. And when I sang it for the recording, I tried to put that more innocent quality in my voice. And I I feel like maybe the reason that it does connect with people, it's not that it denies that God is this, you know, infinite being, but also that he, he also is the person next to you on the bus. And he also is, you know, the, the ordinary thing in, in your day. And if you can see that, if you can see the sacred in the ordinary, then that's a really valuable thing. And I I do think that's why people still connect to the song to this day. Oh yeah. Perfect. Perfectly said. It's, it's the idea that, that, you know, it, it ties into that whole look out for the least among us sort of idea too, because you know, absolutely. I mean? that, that, yes. That whole, it is mm-hmm. a, pow- it's a powerful message for sure. Um, and so that year, I mean, we mentioned you're at the Grammys that year, you know, song of the year, uh, 
I guess you lost to what was it? Kiss from a rose, seal. Dang it, so close. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you were yeah. Um and and then what? Best new artist, a little band named Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, you know, you might have heard of them. But yeah, it was such a cool time for music that that you were there. Any memories from from being there at that ceremony? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember going to the rehearsal and sitting in this, you know, big hall and looking around and seeing all the names of the other artists that were going to be sitting there. And I, you know, I ran over and was like, oh, there's Emmylou Harris. Oh my God. And, you know, freaking out being a fangirl and, and, uh, oh my God, there, there's, uh, you know, there's Nirvana over here and, oh, there's this, <laughs> there's that, you know, it just, it was, uh, it, it was pretty insane, uh, to, to sort of, feel like I was being invited to this, uh, you know, amazing experience, um, you know, because I, I kind of came up playing a bunch of clubs and, and uh, really just sort of doing the road work and um, it, all this glamour was very much new to me. So it, it really did turn my head. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, it's a great song and a great, uh, experience for you for sure. Um, all right. Well, after that, tell me about some of your favorite stuff that you've done since then. I mean, a lot of our listeners, of course, will remember one of us, but do you have a favorite album of, of the ones after that, that if our list, mm. let's say there's a listener that's like, oh yeah, Joan Osborne, one of us. And you, you roll your eyes and say, I've done so much more since <laughs> what, <laughs> what, 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 al what albums would you ask, tell them to say, Hey, go pick this up. Cause I think that's actually my best work. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, it's hard to say. I've done, you know, 10 studio records at this point. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, asking you what your favorite child is. You know? right, right. Um, but uh, I would say if people are more blues fans, uh, we put out a record in 2012 called Bring It On Home, which also got nominated for a Grammy for Blues Album of the Year. Um, so if, you, if that's what you like, I would, you know, steer you towards that. Uh, if you really like the Relish album, um, then there's a record called Little Wild One that came out about 10 years after. And it was a lot of the same people on the team that made Relish. So there are, it's kind of like a sister album to the Relish album. So if you, if you like that, then uh, I would say you could try that out. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, we put a big uh, album of Bob Dylan covers out in 2017. Um, the, the latest thing that we have is this uh, radio waves. If you're a fan of more like the the deep dive and and the uh, you know the the tracks that nobody else is going to have, then you might want to connect with that. So there's a lot of options for people. Awesome, awesome. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, anything else? We wh what's is there a question that no one ever asked you that you wish they would? <laughs> is there a part of your career? Because <laughs> maybe I'm missing the best stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I do really always want to say to the fans that. I'm so grateful to be able to do music for my living. And it's, I know what a privilege it is. And the only reason I can still be out here after 30 years of doing this is because of the fans that I have and because the people who come out and support live music. And I would just say that we don't, I don't take them for granted. And every time I come out, I try to give 110% and I hope I can still be doing this for years to come. So just, just sending out a lot of gratitude to the fans is what I want to do. Oh, I'm sure the feelings mutual. I'm sure the you know the fans uh, appreciate it as well. Um, is, well, is there any chance? Is there any chance you could ever go back to those documentary filmmaking uh, roots? <laughs> is there any chance that you would ever uh, pursue that again? Uh, I mean, you know, I'll never say never. I think it's a very interesting thing to do. Um, 
you know, doing music is pretty all encompassing. But as I get older, I also think, well, you know, um, how much longer am I going to be around? Are there other things that I might like to try in this life? So, yeah, I would I would think that there's, uh, you know, that's a possibility for sure. Yeah. Well, in a way, in a way, you kind of came back to it with the Funk Brothers doc, right? The Standing in the Shadows of mm-hmm. Motown. You were in that. So you kind of got back into a documentary in a certain way. So it kind of That's counts. true. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. <laughs> There's me trying to find uh, full circle ties that might not actually be there, but we'll go with it. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, everybody, it's Joan Osborne's coming to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia. Historic, historic venue. So you don't want to miss it. It's on March 31st at 7.30 p.m. So get your tickets now. Hey, Joan, thanks so much for doing this. You're so welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. We also spoke in 2016 during her previous performance at the Birchmere. Hey, Jason, it's Joan Osborne calling. Hey, how are you? I'm great. How you doing? I am great. Take me back to your roots in Kentucky. Were you a kid when you started singing or when did you start? Well, yeah, I used to sing as a kid and um, I sang in school and I grew up in a very small town called Anchorage, Kentucky. Um, But we had a wonderful music teacher there and her name was Carolyn Browning. And she really challenged the kids to do some fairly complicated, you know, multi-part harmonies, like four and five and six part harmonies. And I was part of a, a small singing group at the school that did madrigal old english madrigal tunes at christmas time and um, <laughs> and you know this this teacher really she sort of was very supportive of me and uh, and really gave me a lot of encouragement uh, so i feel like that was a bit of a a good foundation for me to learn how to sing harmonies and and just to be you know to practice singing at that point in my life when i was you know 11 and 12 years old but i didn't really do anything um, when I was in high school or the beginning of college, and I didn't get into singing again until I was in my early 20s in New York. Yeah, isn't what brought you to New York? You were going to film school at NYU, right? That's right. I was studying filmmaking at NYU, and I thought I was going to become a documentary filmmaker, but I just kind of accidentally, uh, you know, fell into the music scene that was going on there, and there was a lot of great music happening in the clubs and, and uh, small, small venues at that time. Um, and I, it was a total accident that I got involved in it, but uh, I started to make a lot of friends and meet a lot of other musicians, and, and you know, slowly, uh, after much pestering, was able to land my first job singing at one of these clubs and, um, you know, sort of built it from there and, and uh, went from doing open mic nights for free to, you know, after a couple of years to playing five and six nights a week in, in New York City. Um, I want to go into the open mic night, but first I want to, I'm curious about the Joan Osborne aspiring documentary filmmaker in the late 80s. What, <laughs> d- did you have any idols? Were, were you watching like Errol Morris stuff and you said, hey, I want to do a doc, doc filmmaking or, or, or was it fiction? Yeah, or? I mean, I did like Errol Morris and, and uh, I had a, some really excellent teachers at NYU and, uh, you know, Barbara Koppel was an idol of mine who, who made the great film Harlan County, USA. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I started to, you know, the more documentaries I saw, the more I really got engaged by them and thought, well, you know, you could never make this stuff up that people are making these documentary films about. You know, right. the truth is stranger than fiction. And, and the characters that you meet in documentary films are, uh, I just seem, it seemed to me like they were much deeper and more interesting than anybody you could make up in, in, as a fiction film. So <laughs> I really got, got excited by it and, and got the bug for it. But somehow uh, you shifted to the to the live music scene, the open mic nights. Was it a Billie Holiday song I read, or what got That's you out on right. the? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I uh, well, I was 
living in, you know, in New York, and there was a guy in my building who invited me to go out for a drink with him, and we just happened to live on a street where there was a, a blues bar on the corner called the Abilene Cafe, and so that we just went there for a drink. And this was fairly late at night, and the, there had been a band playing, but they were finished. Um, but the piano player was still there playing just for himself and the handful of people who were still in this bar. And the guy who I was with dared me to go up and sing a song with the piano player and said, I will buy these drinks if you will go up and sing a song with him. Um, so I did. And the, the song that the piano player and I both knew was uh, God Bless the Child, which is a Billie Holiday song. Of course. And so I, I did that, and, uh, you know, the piano player was like, oh, you know, that's pretty good. You should come back on Tuesday nights. We have an open mic night here every Tuesday. <laughs> so I started doing that. I started going and, you know, signing up on the sign-up sheet and waiting around and listening to other people and, and then getting up on stage and doing one or two blues songs. And from that, I, I you know, as I was saying, I met a lot of people and yeah. found out that there were other open mic nights and started going and hearing bands and and just started really getting into the music scene that was happening in New York at the time. What was the name of the open mic place? Do you remember? It was called the Abilene, yeah, the Abilene Cafe. Okay. Like Abilene, Texas. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. And then, uh, so you started meeting all these people and suddenly you get, you know, a record deal and lo, lo and behold, here, <laughs> here, here, here comes Relish. It wasn't exactly suddenly that I got a record deal. But, uh, There's no such thing as an overnight time. success. Yeah, the classic story of, you know, three years later you have an overnight success. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, for me, it was I was having success every night as far as I was concerned because I was you know, either either going out with friends to hear great music or going and seeing friends' bands play or playing myself and, you know, meeting a lot of great people. And it was a very social atmosphere. And, you know, I made some great friends. And for me, you know, it's coming from this little town in Kentucky, just to, like, get on stage in New York City and have people actually pay attention and like what I was doing. And, you know, that felt like a big success, even at that level to me. So it, it's you know, it's all been success from that point on. Absolutely. And just moving chronologically a little bit then, so so you're doing your three years of overnight success. <laughs> and <laughs> all of a sudden, Relish arrives, and all of us, you know, you become a household name. We all know it and love it. It goes like multi-platinum. You get nominated for all these Grammys. Where were you when you heard um, uh, one of us on the radio the first time? I'm sure that I was in a van on my <laughs> way to a gig when we heard one of us on the radio for the first time. I think it might have been in Georgia because we were on our way to play a gig in Atlanta, and I think the pop station in Atlanta had just started uh, playing it, and really somebody there was a believer, and they were playing it a lot. So I believe I was on a highway somewhere in Georgia in a band, my band, and that was probably the first time I heard it on the radio. I think you were a stranger on a bus, but I'll take the van. I think I'll take the van. <laughs> that sounds like a likely story. Um, what I mean, all these years later, like, what do those those lyrics mean to you? I and mean, people have dissected them for like twenty years now. But you know, every time you sing it, do you you know what is what does a song mean to you now? Well, you know, the thing that I think connects me to the song and connects people to the song is that it it's not telling you what you're supposed to think. It's asking you to search yourself for for what you believe, and uh, I think that's the strength of the song, is that it invites people in and asks them what they what they think and what they believe and what feels right to them, so it sparks a lot of discussion in that way. Um, and for me, the, the images that I keep coming up with are things like the image of the Good Samaritan, you know, the person who 
stopped and, and helped, uh, you know, someone by the side of the road who needed assistance. And, of course. And, it, and that was Jesus. And, and it sort of illustrates the, the proverb that as you, as you I'm, I'm not going to say this correctly, but as you treat the least of my children, so you treat me. So it's an invitation to see, you know, the holy and the godly in every person. Um, and I, I feel like that's something that we all can can do and can be reminded of, and that's that's what I tend to take away from it. And and as I sing it, you know, night after night, I I really feel like people connect with it. And um, we've been, you know, the, my musical partner Keith Cotton has created this beautiful stripped down solo piano arrangement of the song, which is probably what we'll be doing down at the Birchmere, and it really focuses on the lyrics, and it's a really beautiful version, and, and you know, people really get carried away and, and get choked up by it, so it still has a lot of power, and, and I don't I don't get tired of singing it ever. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure every radio interview you do, they say, do you ever get tired of singing that? I'm not going <laughs> to, I am not going to ask you that, but, um, but, okay. it, but I mean, but I, I mean, along similar lines though, is it, is it crazy to think you have sort of that, that career song that's going to follow you everywhere you go? It'll be the first line in the obit, hopefully decades from now, but you know what I mean? Like what, what what's it like to be attached to a, a song like that? Hmm. Well, I have to say, you know, that, that song has opened up doors for me that, I, you know, probably would never have opened if I didn't have a song that had that kind of recognition and that sort of global moment, you know, because it was it was a hit not just in the U.S. but places like Israel, Israel and Australia and India, and you know, it it uh, it allowed a lot of uh, a lot of people to you know be introduced to me, and there were a lot of opportunities that I had because of the success of that song which I'm nothing but grateful for. And, you know, if, if there's one song that you have to be attached to, that's a pretty good one. You know, yeah. you could have had, you know, something that like Rump Shaker or something that's not <laughs> not super deep. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, hey, a boom, 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 probably, and a zoom, zoom, that's pretty deep. Yeah, uh, no. you know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. to have songs you're attached to, that's a pretty good right. one. I think. One with a little bit of meaning to it, not just a, you know, a, dan- a dance song. I got you, mm-hmm. I got you. Um, but I mean, but yeah, I mean, uh, since then, you said it's opened a lot of doors. You've sort of stretched the bounds of, of different genres. I mean, I know you played with the Funk Brothers, and, and on that document, mm-hmm. there you go, got back to your documentary side. Um, you did a little yeah. you did a little country at the Opry and the Dixie Chicks, and then you mentioned the blues album you know what uh do you have do you have sort of a, a, a genre or style you're sort of um most fond of currently or do you do you like shifting back and forth well it, to me i feel like the genre lines are a little bit um i mean they're a little bit arbitrary for me because i feel like soul music which is what i try to do you know that's that's just music that reaches your soul and it mm-hmm. can be you know, R&B music, or it can be country music, or it can be pop music, it can be a lot of different styles, but it's, it reaches down to your soul and uh, and reaches a part of you that nothing else can touch. And so I, I, that's what I would pick, is, is that kind of music, no matter what genre you want to assign it to. It's it's absolutely true, and I feel like the more the the further and further we we uh, we go down this road uh, of music, uh, I feel like all the, the the lines are getting more blurred anyway, which I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about Trigger Hippie, the Black Crows drummer. Yeah, we uh, we are a stone rock and roll band. Nice, and uh, it's really really fun. Uh, we put our first record out in 2014 and toured behind that a little bit and got a, a lot of really great response. 
from that. And at this point, we're writing more songs and heading back into the studio. Uh, and that's that's a really, really fun thing. That's, that's one of the cool things about um, doing music is that, you know, it, you're able to, I mean, I could just do Joan Osborne things, you know, for the rest of my life, and that would be great. But because I've met so many great people and collaborated with so many interesting people over the years, you're able to do these, you know, side projects or whatever you want to call them and really kind of change it up and, and it keeps things fresh for everybody. And, and it's just fun. It's like any anything you can think of, anything you can make happen, you can do. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that I've got an audience that's interested and, and comes out to see the different things that I'm involved in. Awesome. Joan Osborne, thanks so much for taking the time. It was awesome talking to you. Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure, Jason. Thanks. Thanks, Joan. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.